Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud on Out podcast. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. This podcast is about all things AWS, and we share our experience with AWS in our day-to-day work. This is episode number um, 69, and we are recording this on February the 2nd in 2023. In case you're watching this live on YouTube, feel free to add comments so uh, with your questions so we can answer them uh, uh, later in the show. Besides that, you can reach us on LinkedIn, on Mastodon, on Twitter, as well as via email. So feel free to reach out to us with your questions. Yeah, and before we start, here's a message from our partner. Are you looking for a new job? AWS expertise is in high demand. Our partner Demikin is looking for a cloud operations lead working remotely from Germany or the EU. So you could be the one who leads a growing team of cloud architects and DevOps engineers. So hire new team members, manage service delivery. Um, that's all what this role is about. Demikin is one of the largest technical consulting teams here in Germany, and they have been focusing on Atlassian and our full service provider here in Germany. And now they are building a new business division um, with a focus on cloud technologies, which you can join here. So check out that opportunity. You will find a link in the video description and the show notes. Okay, Michael, so um, let's start. So um, uh, over the past week, I've been working on a few things and I want to share some of my uh, learnings with you uh, and of course our listeners as well. So um, the first thing is, um, so uh, I think at the beginning of the year or last at the end of last year, um, I created um, CloudFormation templates for deploying a Mastodon instance to AWS. And we have been using that for social.cloud.out, our own Mastodon instance. And um, there was one uh, thing on my to-do list <laughs> for quite some time now, which was adding CloudFront in front of the S3 bucket that stores all the assets. So user profile pics, user uploads, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to, to fix that because there was also a bug related to this S3 bucket thing and basically all other instances and users pull the images directly from our S3 bucket. Um, so yeah, I wanted to, to fix that. So I yeah, created a cloud formation, a CloudFront um, distribution and um, I was modifying the bucket policy and so on. And then um, what I realized is I really run into a very strange S3 <laughs> permission thing. <laughs> because I, uh, as soon as I switched to my new setup, um, I had a bucket policy in place for granting CloudFront access to the bucket with this, is it called CloudFront Origin? How is it called? Uh, I forgot the origin name. Origin Access, I think. Yeah, Origin Access. Like so only yeah. CloudFront can access the objects uh, in the bucket. Uh, I had that. This was working fine. So delivering the assets um, was working. But then I tried to upload a new image to, my, to attach it to my post, and this failed. And after digging into the, in the, the logs of the Mastodon instance, I found out, oh, this is because of an S3 denied error. So access denied error when uploading the file to S3. But I, I really couldn't find out what was going on there. So usually I fix IAM and S3 permission errors in a few minutes, right? Because that's what I <laughs> probably do every day. 
But this one was really tricky. It took me hours <laughs> to figure it out. Because, so what would you check, Michael, when you have an S3 permission error? So it's a container running on a Fargate. Uh, it needs to access an S3 bucket. So where would you start checking the permissions? <laughs> I mean, I would start the IAM role of the, yeah. the, the Fargate task. Uh, but, I mean, you haven't changed this, right? I mean, it was working before, so, I mean, there's not too much that could break. Yes, here. I saw that as well. So I checked uh, yeah. the IAM policy. Um, I looked into encryption, so I thought maybe it's an encryption key that I don't have access to, but there's no encryption key involved. Mm -hmm. IAM policy looked fine. I, I really couldn't figure it out. I, I turned on CloudTrail data events, to see if something mm -hmm. is going on there. So the requests are coming in. And um, one thing I realized um, then is <laughs> when, I, when I looked into the CloudTrail logs, I found one thing that caught my attention. This was um, the request coming in for putting an object into the bucket um, was also um, setting an object access control list property. Uh, and basically mm -hmm. it set the object... Um, ACL to public read. So this is the default that Mastodon uses to make sure that when you upload a new object to S3, it's readable from, from, mm -hmm. a, from anywhere. Um, but because I reconfigured my S3 bucket and I'm using one of the modules that probably you wrote, uh, um, mm -hmm. I automatically turned on block public access for the bucket, mm -hmm. which is a feature... Uh, of S3 that prevents yeah, publishing, accidentally publishing information to the world. And you can turn off basically those object and bucket um, access control lists. And um, there's, um, there's even a configuration which is called um, block public uh, access control lists. And when you turn that on, uh, you will get an access denied if you put an object with a public read object uh, access control lists uh, configuration <laughs> so that is what happened <laughs> and actually I mean, wasn't there like a big initiative that aws kind of uh, announced that they will improve the error messages i mean why can't they tell us that okay this is a, i mean i don't know if it should be an access denied error but if it's an access denied error just tell us it's denied because the acl you said does not match with yeah. the block public access settings or something <laughs> that's uh -huh. a that's a good question michael uh, i thought about that as well uh, i don't know um, it could also be related to because i'm the mastodon um, software is basically written in in ruby i think it's ruby mm -hmm. yes and um they're, they're using some wrappers around the s3 access so maybe the real error message gets hidden somewhere. That's possible. I don't know. Okay, I see. Uh, mm -hmm. I couldn't find it in the debug logs. Um, but yeah, but that's what I found. And then the, the funny thing is then I, uh, I was trying to figure out how do I get rid of the public read <laughs> access mm -hmm. control list for my, for my object. And it turns out that this is an undocumented configuration environment variable. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I I, got, I went through the, all the um, code in, in the Mastodon mm -hmm. repository and I found it there, luckily. So there's an S3 underscore permission environment variable and you can set that to private and then everything works. Okay. Yeah, so this was really okay, crazy. That's cool. At least there's a setting, right? Yeah, I was, I was glad about that. Yeah, I think it shouldn't be the default to public read, but that's another thing. And mm -hmm. um, I made a pull request to update the documentation. On Mastodon, and I learned a, a new thing about S3 access denied errors. <laughs> so you need to check <laughs> <laughs> if you did enable block public access, and then check 
whether the, the one that creates the object is um, using a public read uh, access control list setting. Yeah, so that's my learning. Took me about two hours. <laughs> you <laughs> totally wasted time because I just wanted to, <laughs> to publish a new post and then I run into that. But that's what it is when you run your own instance, that's right? That's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I had a... I was also running into issues, Andreas, and, and this time I was testing our Bucket AV uh, antivirus for MS3, Amazon S3 uh, software in the new um, region, um, AP Southeast 4, so that's the, how's it called? Is it, I don't remember the city name actually, is it Melbourne? I think it is, yeah. Possible, yeah. All right. So what I did is I just created an AMI there that was working and I was spinning up the CloudFormation stack and then I was running into all kinds of errors. And that kind of led me to um, thinking a little bit about the variances between AWS regions. So this is what I want to share here. And one thing that I discovered, I think it was last year, that different regions have different quotas. And this is especially true for services like SNS, SQS, and EventBridge, where the, um, the maximum allowed of messages that you can send per second varies very significantly. So for example, US East 1, which is a very big region, has very high quotas, while smaller regions have much lower quotas. So if you, for example, deploy your solution to a big region and your fallback region is a much smaller one, then you will have a hard time if you reach one of those quotas, actually, because they it will just not work in the other region. Then, um, so this is uh, very important if you plan or if you have like fallback plans if the main region goes out. And I think everyone that runs in US East One has kind of a fallback, right? Because it is uh, uh, often uh, what's well, the region that is most often uh, impaired by by larger outages. So watch out for that if you choose a backup location uh, that. At least if you're using one of those services that have region-specific quotas, uh, you will not run into issues there. And the other thing that really kind of annoys me is that current generation EC2 instances are, like the types are not available in all regions. So for example, in the, the new region, we don't have the AMD-backed instances. So for example, we don't have M5As. And I mean, if it's a current generation region, I kind of expect that it's just available, but it's not. So don't be um, misleaded by the term current generation. Um, and also what I was experienced this time, and this is why kind of all the whole topic came up, is um, that it seems to be a new kind of, I don't know, I never experienced that before, so it, it must be, I, I think, new, that some features are disabled in some regions. So for example, we deploy an auto-scaling group that has a spot allocation strategy that we set to capacity optimized prioritized, <laughs> which is a whole, I mean, the whole thing is a, a topic on its own, but uh, we ignore what it actually means. But it turns out that this specific spot allocation strategy is not available in this new region. So <laughs> it, it is just missing. And I was a little bit frustrated because, I mean, if I can now no longer deploy my, my cloud permission template to different regions, then it gets really... Uh, uh, I would say at least harder than in the past um, because I, I was never running into issues like this. And another thing that we learned, Andreas, with the Mastodon <laughs> project is that um, some features are not even available in all availability zones. So for example, we had uh, someone running into issues deploying an uh, application load balancer into a specific um, uh, availability zone 
And this is really, I mean, this variance is really increasing the complexity if you want to have one solution that works in multiple regions uh, and even the, the whole tool CloudFormation is not able to deal with that problem. Uh, so Terraform is, is much better because you can query some of the parameters um, with a data, res a data resource, but in CloudFormation you're totally lost. So you, you basically end up with custom resources that check for certain values and then return them in outputs and then uh, you can uh, kind of try to work around all those problems. But yeah, I don't think that we have tooling to deal with the problem. And I also think that AWS shouldn't introduce those problems to us <laughs> at the first uh, place. So um, yeah. yeah, that's it, Andreas. That's what yeah. I learned. So it's yeah. really hard these days to run your stuff in multiple regions. Yeah, I think, I, I think our, um, our scenario is maybe special because um, with Bucket AV, we have to or we aim to support all available AWS regions. So our solution, our application uh, has to run in all those uh, regions. That's probably what mo that's not a usual thing to do for most <laughs> for most um, companies, probably. But yeah, for us, it's important. And um, I think the only way around it is to to run our integration tests in all. Actually, you should you have to run them in all regions, or at least in the new yeah. regions that you add to make sure you're spotting all those um, uh, special specialties. Um, yeah, that's really that's really hard, and that's quite complicated to do as well, and quite expensive to do. <laughs> so if you have to go over all those regions, and as they are adding more and more regions, the the the, the situation gets probably worse over time. Yeah. And I mean, still, I mean, we can spot the issue and we can do that today, right? Um, but um, then there is a problem how to fix it. <laughs> mm, yeah. Because in some situations, I mean, how do you do it in the CloudFormation? It's yeah. not so easy. For example, you don't know the availability zone ID that you deploy to and things mm. like that. And, and it's really crazy. Yeah? So we definitely need that. Yeah. 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 We should try to raise some awareness for that. Maybe that's. <laughs> There are yeah. not too many not having that issue, and it's a new problem, right? I mean, I, I had this is a problem that I was that I'm running maybe into since maybe a year or so. So I was never running into this issue a couple of years ago. So it it must be a new problem, um, or mm. I haven't uh, experienced it before. But I mean, we use the same template, the same product, and so for a couple of years. So I don't. Yeah, maybe another that. thing is maybe it's worth waiting a few months before activating a new region. Because yeah. maybe some others will run for, into that problem. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, same for new services. But I mean, yeah. what is what's the, the strategy? I mean, we we release a new region, and all customers wait for you on one year until it's done. Or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe you just wait for another year before you release it. But yeah. yeah. So I think smaller regions. So I've seen someone complaining on LinkedIn about the the new region in Switzerland. I think it was mm -hmm. released a few months ago, and. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be that this region is missing many, many, many AWS services, and they're not deploying mm -hmm. them to the region. So, probably the issue, um, yeah, is worse in in very small regions where there's yeah. not too much demand, and yeah, there's not too yeah. much yeah, focus of AWS to fix those things. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Michael. Um, next uh, next topic is um, self-hosted GitHub runners on AWS. So. Um, I was working on um, a project together with one of our consulting clients, and the goal was to um, run GitHub runners on AWS, um, so self-hosted GitHub runners on AWS. And um, what I wanted to share with you is basically um, the overall architecture 
that mm -hmm. I came up with uh, for that. So, um, yeah, having, so the thing is, so overall, so with all those uh, tools like Jenkins, GitHub, GitLab, and so on, you need those runners to, um, for running your build jobs. Uh, so you need some uh, compute capacity to run all your build jobs. And um, typically, uh, such a CI/CD infrastructure uh, is not utilized 24/7. Um, it's typically utilized during the working hours of the developers, and you you might have huge spikes in your uh, workload. So, Michael, I remember <laughs> we have yeah. one of our very first consulting projects where we have been working there. There was a CI/CD infrastructure, and um, uh, as a consultant, I, I think it was. Thursday or Friday evening when I had to pick my train back home and every time I tried to deploy something before leaving and this was really hard because the CICD infrastructure was under high pressure and executing a job a job just waited hours <laughs> to execute because there were no workers so yeah it is hard to basically scale the infrastructure that you need for that you don't want to over provision you don't want to uh, wait too long and uh, if you're not using code build or something and you, ha you run that your own, uh, that's a thing you, you need to, to cover. And I thought, okay, let's, let's look for the simplest possible solution to achieve that. And my idea was, okay, so let's just launch a new EC2 instance for each uh, GitHub um, job that is waiting for a runner. And um, of course, the downside of that is it takes a little bit. So in my experience, it takes about a minute. Uh, so after you start the job until it starts executing on the EC2 instance. So there's maybe room for improvement, but that's how it is right uh, right now. And um, what, I, what, what I came up with was is the solution that um, GitHub sends a webhook event to an API gateway, which forwards it to a Lambda function. And the Lambda function then just launches an EC2 instance based on a launch template. So this spins up the instance with the GitHub runner pre-installed and um, the GitHub runner then registers itself uh, at, at the GitHub um, server and then starts executing the job. So that's basically mm -hmm. uh, how the thing looks like. There's one special thing. So to register a GitHub runner, you need a token. A token is only valid for, I think it's an hour by default. Uh, so you need a mechanism to generate those tokens automatically to be able to uh, register a new runner. Um, and so I, I did that by creating a, another Lambda function that the EC2 instance is invoking um, during startup and gets the token from. By doing that, I did not have to um, yeah, add the private key that is used for that, for the GitHub app that, that is allowed to do so. I didn't have to add that private key to the AMI, which is, I think, a good idea because, yeah, people are executing their jobs on this machine. So, yeah, this is not yeah. really a safe space, I would say. <laughs> so this was my uh, solution to that. And, yeah, I think this is a really um, a simple approach. So it took about two or three days uh, to really build it and to become production ready. And um, now it just spins up new machines on demand. They're picking their job. And then um, what I, uh, what, well, how to get rid of the job. So GitHub runners have an option that is called ephemeral. So basically uh, the GitHub runner will only execute one job and then it will just shut down or execute the, uh, exit the, the process. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'm doing is um, I set the, this is called um, 
how is it called? Um, it is called the easy to, uh, easy to instance initiated shutdown behavior. <laughs> this is the configuration for easy to. And this means when you hold the system from inside the operating system, this tells uh, EC2 what to do with the virtual machine. By default, this is, this is stop. So that means the instance will um, stick around. You, you could start it later. But you can change that to terminate, which means whenever the operating system halts, shut, da shut downs the operating system, it will terminate the instance. Uh, and that's what I'm, mm -hmm. I'm using here. And this also allows me to use um, uh, shutdown uh, instance in 60 minutes. So, so when the instance starts, the first thing I do is I, I set shutdown this instance in 60 minutes. This is basically then the, the timeout for the job. Um, this is, uh, I think, mm -hmm. also an interesting approach. Yeah, so I think this is a, quite an interesting solution. And um, what I want to ask um, our listeners uh, is, um, are you running self-hosted GitHub runners on AWS as well? If so, how do you do so? Why do you do so? <laughs> Please write in and share your insights. Uh, I'm keen to learn about different scenarios. Uh, I'm thinking about um, yeah, building this out into um, a project as well. All right, Andrea. So if I understand you correctly, then basically what happens is in user data, you set shutdown minus H 60 minutes, and mm. then you run the GitHub runner. And because it exits after it's done, you then execute the command shutdown minus H now. Yeah. So that's, okay. that's more or less how it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. And then also you also have to get the token and stuff, but that's the, like the simplified version. All mm. right. I see. Okay. Yeah, cool and I like thing. it's. A, I like that it's really simple, so I don't have to yeah. manage a pool of instances. I don't have to uh, think about how to update the instance, how to patch the thing. I can just build yeah. a new AMI, update the large template, and the next yeah. job will start with the new configuration. So that's I think. Yeah. And I also cool like well. it. I mean, it's fully isolated, um, so mm. each each job runs on on a very like clean state. So yeah, that's starts from a good, the, yeah, good thing. Yeah, and actually, Michael, I learned uh, I learned one more thing about GitHub mm -hmm. Actions that I didn't uh, know before, because um, so with GitHub Actions, so when you have to do things like Terraform, TerraCrunch, or whenever you need some kind of a, mm -hmm. uh, a tool, a library to execute your your stuff, so I was always in in trouble because there are GitHub Actions available that basically configure you or, or install your Terraform each time you run mm -hmm. uh, your actions. Uh, and they, I, Actually, I don't like all these actions because this is a public repo. Someone maintains a GitHub action. So it's just one guy that has f three months ago or three years ago published this GitHub action is not maintaining it. And I'm trusting this <laughs> this user to to make sure I'm not injecting any bad code into my pipeline, which has access to my AWS accounts. So, so I, in, in general, I don't like to use those uh, GitHub actions to set up uh, those things. Mm -hmm. And what I found out is you can use um, a concept that I like really much for CI/CD is you can use basically run your jobs inside containers as well with GitHub actions. So for your jobs, you can specify all those um I think it's called tasks in GitHub. Um, all those tasks should run inside this specific container. Then you provide the image and uh, GitHub Actions will download the image and start a container uh, out of it. And by that, you can bring your own container image with the things included mm -hmm. that you need. And each project can bring its own container image so they're not sharing any dependencies and stuff. 
So I like this um, very much. And it, again, isolates the whole thing. It, this was a good approach with Jenkins. It's a good approach, I think, on every CI, CD uh, tool mm -hmm. that you're using. And I want to, to introduce that to our GitHub Actions as well. Yeah, it also makes it very clear the dependencies that you need to build your project because otherwise you rely on this AMI and if it's yeah. then shared by others and, and, and things and exactly. someone changes it, it all breaks that, that job. Yeah, well. or in worst case, you download the Terra form binary every time you run your build job yeah. if it's not cached. Right. It's super like inefficient. That. That's yeah. All. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah. And um, it depends on third parties that I do not control. So imagine I yeah. need to download a Terra, I don't know, Terraform, TerraGrunt, AWS CLI, and so many things can go wrong. So yeah, yeah. I love that is now included into one container image. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a good plan. And, and it's the same that, that we did, I mean, with Jenkins as well, right? So yeah. Okay, so I have one last thing, Andreas. Um, do we have time for that or? Sure, sure, we have. All right. So I was um, um, fixing a bug uh, that I was experiencing. Again, this is also now referencing Bucket AV, the antivirus for Amazon S3 product. But it, it basically is a problem that occurs in uh, a scenario where you have an SQS queue with EC2 instances acting as the workers. And those are these instances are managed by an autoscaling group. And you autoscale the autoscaling group based on the number of messages uh, available in the queue. So what we do is we scale up our fleet based on approximate number of messages visible. So that's a CloudWatch metric. And we just scale up our fleet. And But this is not actually the topic. So the scaling up is, is working fine. So what we actually use is we use step scaling. So if our queue has like a few items, we add one instance. If it has much more items, we add like more instances basically in one shot. Um, but this is uh, not what I'm going to talk about today. What I'm going uh, to talk about today is the scale in. Uh, so what happens when we have no messages in the queue anymore? So how do we get rid of the workers? And what we did um, before uh, I um, uh, experienced the problem was that we uh, also used the same metric, approximate number of messages visible, um, to scale down the fleet if this metric was zero. So that was basically the rule. So there was a CloudWatch alarm and it says, okay, if uh, this um, metric goes um, like small or how is it called uh, less than or equal to zero I don't know what exactly the terminology is but basically if it's uh, zero then uh, trigger the scale in action and the problem now is that um, we have uh, a file that uh, basically the worker takes a lot of time to process this file for some reason so like it, I think it's uh, 12 minutes or something so what, what happens is the worker picks the key and the message from the queue. It starts working on it. And then what also happens is that the approximate number of messages visible goes down to zero in the moment where you pick it from the queue. And so from a perspective of the autoscaling rule, it looks like that there's nothing to do anymore. And that's why after, in our case, five minutes, we kind of terminate the instance. <laughs> um, but the instance is still working on the, 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 um, the job. So what happens is instance is terminated. Then we, when we pick a message from the queue, we, we, we say that um, we con either confirm within 60 seconds or uh, extend the period we're working on it um, for another 60 seconds. So within 60 seconds, SQS will recognize, okay, this file was never acknowledged. It pops up again in the queue, message number, uh, the 
approximate number of messages visible, boop, goes down to, <laughs> it goes up to one. Mm -hmm. We scale up, we add another instance <laughs> from zero to one. Mm -hmm. We start working on it. Five minutes later, we kill it, boom. Um, takes another minute, it uh, <laughs> appears in the queue again, and so on and so forth until we reach our maximum uh, number of retries, which is, I think, three. Mm -hmm. And then we will move it to the dead letter queue. Um, okay, so I was thinking about how to fix that problem because what we have in our backlog is uh, uh, for, for other scenarios a very similar problem. But to fix this specific scenario where the problem occurs because we scale down to zero, I, I figured out a very simple solution. And that solution uh, is that I combine two metrics to trigger the scaling actions. So I, I still use uh, approximate number of messages visible, but I also use the metric approximate number of messages not visible. And this contains basically the files that are in progress. Or the, not the files, sorry, the, the messages that are in progress. So you can use metric math to just kind of add those two metrics. And then I get a much better view of the tasks that are in progress as well as the ones that are sitting in the queue. And if this then is down to zero, then I can really shut down the instance. Um, so that was the simple solution for this very specific problem. So an alternative approach that we have in our backlog that, that, that also works for, like if you scale in from five to four, so, uh, for example, is to use an, uh, an autoscaling group lifecycle hook. So there you basically get the information, okay, the autoscaling group wants to terminate the instance and now you have um, time to do something before you kind of acknowledge that it's now time to actually terminate the instance. Um, so this is another approach, but the problem is it's, it is much more complex. It adds a lot of other problems. So for example, what if your the mechanism that kind of acknowledges this is broken? So there is a timeout somewhere. So if the um, autoscaling group does not receive something from you within, you can configure that 30 seconds or 300 seconds. It just goes on to, to terminate it and things like this. But so I just wanted to fix that specific problem and I just achieved that with metric math. A very simple solution, I think, for the problem and it, it works perfectly. And uh, that's uh, the last lesson that I learned last week, Andreas, that I want to share. Yeah, very cool, Michael. So I think uh, it's important to mention that now you're combining the number of messages visible, that's the number of messages waiting, and you're combining that with the messages not visible, which is the ones that are currently processed. You're combining those right. two metrics. Um, but it's important to note this is only working for the scale-in events, so to scale down the number of instances, because for scale-up, you only have to look at the ones waiting in the queue. So that's important, I think. Yeah, because that was, that was my first uh, thought when you <laughs> described that to me. So how do you make that happen? But yeah, it's just you just do it for the scale-in, not for the scale-out, and then... That's working fine. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, very simple solution. Again, I, th I think we <laughs> today we had two simple solutions to, to complex problems. I like that a lot. <laughs> I love those simple yeah, solutions. Great. Okay. So, yeah, then that's it. We will be next week with the next podcast episode. Subscribe to our newsletter, uh, the podcast, or the YouTube channel to make sure you're not missing the upcoming episode. Uh, we're looking forward to your feedback as well. So, for example, write in to hello at cloudonaut.io or find us on LinkedIn or Mastodon. Uh, so looking forward to your feedback about uh, the podcast and the topics we discussed today. Yeah, and also we want to thank all our supporters uh, who make this show possible. So um, please consider supporting our work. Uh, so there are a couple of options. So there's one-time or recurring donations available. 
And you can find all the links in uh, the, the, the video description or the show notes. So thank you very much for watching this. And um, the last thing to say is bye. Have a great day. Bye.